dimensional, transforming, musical, linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Well, we have a real treat for you today. Thanks to John Hanna and JT, we're going to hear a talk that Jim Fadiman gave at the Mindstakes Conference in 2001, which was held in Berkeley that year. That's Berkeley, California, of course, as if you don't know where Berkeley is. Anyway, for those of you who aren't familiar with the huge body of work that Dr. Fadiman has done in the area of consciousness research, here's what the Mindstakes program said about him that year. And I quote, James Fadiman, Ph.D., has been involved in both teaching and facilitating creative problem solving with and without psychedelics for more than three decades. His experience ranges from early experimentation with Ram Dass and Tim Leary at Harvard to government-sanctioned legal research with Myron Stolaroff and Willis Harmon at Stanford. He co-founded the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology, where he now teaches, and has just released the novel, The Other Side of Hate. Now, I can still remember that just before Jim gave this presentation, my wife and I were having dinner with Myron and Jean Stoleroff and a couple of their friends, and all during dinner, Myron kept hurrying us along because he wanted to be sure that we made it to hear Jim's talk on time. And uh, that evening, it was the last night of the conference, by the way, Jim was the, the final speaker, and he talked about ways in which psychedelics can also be used to enhance our capacity in the ultra-rational world of analytic, scientific, and engineering pursuits, which you acid heads who keep the internet running smoothly already know, of course. So take a listen for yourself, and I think you'll hear why Myron thinks so highly of him. And now, here is Jim Fadiman giving a presentation titled, Using Psychedelics to Solve Technical and Scientific Problems. So let's... uh Take a deep breath, change probability realities, put your sexual organs back where they belong. Because I have been asked to talk on the other end of the psychedelic spectrum, probably one of the few ways that this group hasn't used psychedelics for rational work on rational problems in the totally material world. And just for a moment, we have just heard that one of the more beautiful of the pioneers has um, gone on. And this, in a peculiar way, has also Memorial Day weekend. And while a lot of people are out there honoring some very strange ideas in American history like war is good for you Um, there are a lot of people here who have taken a lot of risks with their lives and with their careers and I'd like to take a moment for us all to honor all of us and also a special thanks to the, the vendors the wonderful botanical uh, artists who've been helping us all weekend and the people 
whose careers have been to help create the information base that we need to survive till the end of the, uh, the age of misinformation that we're in. And what, what we seem to also have lost is a kind of part of our cultural sense of humor about what we're doing. I was looking in a uh, very useful reference book, which is the New Yorker Book of Cartoons from 1925 to 1975. And the one that seemed most appropriate for this weekend is a cartoon of a couple, and they're in a kind of gondola, kind of gorgeous gondola, floating between pillars and peacocks and weeping willows and songbirds. And they're dressed in kind of 1960s Connecticut suburbia clothing. And he says to her, what was the name of that tranquilizer we took? And uh, you just don't see jokes about us much anymore. And that's of great concern to me. It's another one of that same era. It just shows six or seven Indians in a little teepee. And one of them is smiling. What kind of powwow is this? I mean, what's in the pipe? And so we were, uh, we were taking it a little easier at some point. And what we, uh, what some of us were doing was taking the position that psychedelics were not entirely psycho-spiritual, not entirely, uh, certainly not psychotomimetic, certainly not only entheogenic, and all the other words we've used, but that they were something that enhanced capacity. And then the question of, well, what capacities might we try enhancing? And it is not clear to me why, but we decided that we could enhance the, the use of the ultra-rational, analytic, scientific mind, which I suggest to you is the opposite problem of the astral sex situation. And neither of us have done real well with either of these extremes. So... That research was started and it was interrupted by one of the federal government's less bright maneuvers, of which there are so many we could spend the whole evening just, can you top this? And we'd have our categories, idiocy in which department and so forth. Let's ban hemp is one of my favorites because it looks like... <laughs> something that we like. So we did part one of that study, and I felt what would be useful this evening is to start part two of that study. So I'd like you to think about as we go along whether you're going to volunteer for this study. Okay? So that's the setting that I want you to be in, so that as I go through what the first group did, you can make your own decisions. Because this is suddenly relevant again. Um, it has been passed around through the email underworld that we're all part of. The, the recent article in Forbes, which said, you know, given the situation in the capitalist world, what might be useful is a, an institute in which people can get the right stuff in the right setting and then can work on problems like mergers and acquisitions, stock transfers, and new product development which are areas, as you notice, we've not covered here at all. 
So we know it's been presented throughout this conference and what most of us know from uh, personal experience. And while personally now my own work is almost entirely dealing with how do we create safe and sacred spaces for sacred, safe substances, um, there was this early experiment that we were working on the whole other side. And the nice thing is when you say, let's use psychedelics for scientific problem solving, is you get a whole new group of people against you. And there were really two groups. The scientific establishment, and I mean by that the dominant religious paradigm in this country, the scientific fundamentalists, as we would call them, were clear that it was absurd to imagine that drugs which drive people mad, or worse, give them delusions that the world is more than matter and energy, could be given to its priests trained at MIT, Caltech, etc., that it could help them in their chosen work to clear away the clutter of the irrational. This criticism we fully expected, particularly since our research team included a full professor of electrical engineering and a full professor of mechanical engineering, both teaching at these scientific institutions. We were less prepared for the criticism we got from, from you all, from what we might call the radical left, who were horrified at the notion that using substances which from the dawn of time have been used without exception for spiritual exploration, for artistic revelation and mystical transformation, for the shallow purposes of a scientific and commercial establishment. This was a sacrilege beyond comprehension. We had a sudden sympathy for the money changers driven from the temple by Jesus, who were, after all, simply trying to make a buck. <laughs> and, as our friends added, you will fail utterly, since the last thing anyone is going to want to do after ingesting a sacred substance is to piddle with their daily work issues. So I assume you are all part of that second group, so my invitation to invite you to join us in the replication of this study is going to be a difficult one, and I will try and make it as easy as possible by telling you how much fun the first group had. So if I can kind of slip back into that, let me welcome you then to the revivified or reborn uh, International Foundation for Advanced Study. Uh, that was called IFAS. That I just so you will not be confused with Leary, Alpert, and Metzner's group, which was the International Foundation for Internal Freedom, if if they had a 50-room mansion in Millbrook, where they could perform many experiments such as the ones we've just heard. Uh, we were above a beauty parlor in Menlo Park. And we looked out over an oak tree, which I have to admit was in the middle of a parking lot. So it was a somewhat more sober group. But should you come and join us, the room we'll work in actually is a very comfortable living room. Beautiful chairs, easy, you know, soft couch, state-of-the-art stereo equipment, and a deep, soft carpet. 
And our assumption is that any human function can be performed more effectively, which in a sense is a way of saying, you know, we only use X percent of our brain, da, 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 you know that one. So what we tried to do is invent a setting that would maximize the characteristics that would make people want to solve technical problems and allow them to do so. And what we were looking for is concrete, valid, feasible solutions that modern industry and positivistic science could accept. Now this came out of, in a sense, most of you know a little of the work of Oscar Janiger, who basically took a lot of far out people in Los Angeles and gave them LSD or whatever he had around and said, go do some far out creative thing. And they all did. And they all said, that was really far out and creative. And Janiger and others said, you see, we can enhance creativity. And all of the people on the scientific right said, artists are screwballs before and after. And the question of which direction you have screwed their artistic stuff is not going to convince us that this psychedelic should be legalized and available to everyone. So we actually asked people, and this is now where we begin to distinguish which of you is going to be able to make it into this experiment, and we wanted people whose occupation normally required high-level problem solving. Okay? Now, if I'd given this talk a year or two ago when the dot-coms were all filled with people who thought they were solving these problems, I would have no problem getting volunteers, but now there's a whole wave of humility that has struck the culture, which, knowing the Bay Area, will be transient. We asked people to be psychologically stable. This is kind of like three strikes, I know, for some of you, but if you're still, if you're still playing, it's like the game, if you're still in. And the people we asked had to be motivated to discover, verify, and apply solutions within their current work. This was not hobbyists. These were not... Uh, these were people who were getting paid to solve problems. And we also asked them to think about problems that they had been working on for up to three months with no solution. So we wanted them to be hungry. So have you any problems that you have not yet solved? We're, hey, we're doing it one senator at a time. Now, one of the things we had at the beginning, which would not be useful here at all, is we had naive subjects. You can imagine how long ago this was that this research could have occurred. But there are still actually naive people left in the United States, most of them unfortunately in public office. But what we said is, since you have had very little experience with psychedelics, um, you will find there will be no distractions during the research sessions. There will be no problems with visions, involvement with personal emotional states, and so on. And that you will be able to direct your mind exactly as you choose. So we told them. And then we made even more suggestions to encourage mental flexibility and to suggest in a profound sense that a problem that someone has been working on and is in their own field of expertise 
is, in some sense, that answer is available somewhere in their mental framework because they have all the component parts. And it was that kind of remarks that we would make as if we totally believed that. And so we said, you will, for instance, you can try and identify with a central problem from other vantage points than you would usually use. You can see the solution, visualize the parts, go inside the various parts of physical apparatus. Um, you'll find that you can go through solutions very, very quickly, that your memory will be flawless and that you can simply go through possibilities. Uh, you can see it in fresh perspectives. And above all, we suggested not to be timid in the ambitiousness with which you ask questions. If you want to see the solution in a complete three-dimensional image or project yourself forward in time or view some microscopic physical process, by all means, ask yourself to be allowed to do that. And what we did then, this was the night or two before their one-day session, is we basically got together, a group of four and about four of us as staff, and pitched it as well as we could that this was going to work. Um, which, for all we knew at the time, before we got our first subjects, might have. But we were deeply committed and enthusiastic and probably somewhat dishonest. This was, after all, what we would call research, so being dishonest is an appropriate stance. And then we told them, here's what we're going to do for the day. And again, if this is okay for you, because there are some shifts here, uh, come in at about 8.30, uh, light breakfast if you want it. Then at 9 o'clock, psychedelic material given. Now, given what did we use after hearing the possibilities here, I feel like some very primitive being. You know, like we took two sticks and rubbed them together and when they got very warm, we could... 200 milligrams of mescaline. Now, this was in our understanding from a lot of years of clinical work, what we considered a pretty low dose. Normally, when people were interested in a psychedelic experience, a mystical experience, uh, 600 of mescaline was like an opener and if people needed more and more and if they were alcoholics, we'd double it and so forth and so on. Alcoholics are tough. <laughs> they just use up a lot of very expensive material. I mean, we would give enough materials, everyone else is flat out, and these psych alcoholics are walking around saying, well, is anything going to happen? Eventually. So, material given, and then what we said is from 9 to 12 for the morning we're going to give you as much of a internal experience as you wish. And that's with stereo headphones, uh, eye shades, lying down, kind of sensory isolation of a minimal sort. And through the headphones, we're playing predominantly classical music. And at noon, we're going to ask you to take that stuff off. We'll have some food available if any of you are interested, and you may or may not. And then, in the afternoon, work on your problems. And bring what you need to work on them. And we did. if your problem needs, in those days, slide rules or calculators, don't think so. But sketch pads and uh, physical objects, if, if you need it, and so forth. And then we will, uh, after you've worked on that, you'll basically go home, and a week or two later, send us in a report, and six or eight, weeks later we're going to ask you 
basically to report again because these are real problems in real life. And what we said, and again, test this against your own experience, that you will find certain mental strategies are available. And you may find yourself working in any of these ways. One is we suggested you'd find less inhibition and anxiety. Not surprising. Now, I'm now going to be going to a place where I want to tell you what the other, you know, the first people on the first group did experience. We said you'll experience less inhibition and anxiety. They said, and these are now some quotes, there was no fear, no worry, no sense of reputation or competition, no envy. None of the things which in varying degrees have always been present in my work. Another subject, a lowered sense of personal danger. I don't feel threatened anymore. Huh. On this afternoon, the normal blocks in the way of progress seem to be absent. And we said you can probably restructure the problem in a different context. Some of the, some of the reports say I could handle two or three different ideas at the same time and keep track. Normally, I would overlook many more trivial points for the sake of expediency, but under the drug, time seemed unimportant. I faced every possible questionable issue square in the face. You know, when you're working on photoconductivity, that's a tough thing to do. Ability to start from the broadest general basis. I return to the original problem and consciously to think of the problem in its totality rather than through the devices I'd used before. Then we talked about fluency and flexibility. Fluency and flexibility in the creativity world are the kind of buzzwords. Fluency is you can think of more ideas. Flexibility is more different ideas. And sure enough, surprise, I know to many of you, I began to work fast, almost feverishly, to keep up with the flow of ideas. I worked at a pace I would not have thought I was capable of. I was very impressed with the ease with which ideas appeared. It was virtually as if the world was made of ideas. So it was only necessary to examine any part of the world to get an idea. I dismissed my original idea entirely and started to approach the graphic problem in an entirely radically new way. That's when things began to happen. And the feeling during the period of of intense production was one of joy and exuberance. Pure fun of inventing, creating, and playing. We had said, of course, you would not be bothered by visual imagery, but we also said that you would be able to use visual imagery exactly as you wished. Kind of a cheating on both sides. Quote, was able to move imaginary parts. Ah, the next insight came as an image of an oyster shell with mother-of-pearl shining in different colors. I translated that into the idea of an inferometer, two layers separated by a gap equal to the wavelength it is desired to reflect. Another, somewhere along the way, I began to see an image of the circuit. The gates themselves were little silver cones linked together by lines. I watched the circuit flipping through its paces. I began visualizing all the properties known to me that a photon possesses and attempted to make a model for a photon. You ever tried that? I guess not, okay. 
Here's a moment for you. Just go along with it. The photon was comprised of an electron and a positron cloud moving together in intermeshed synchronously helical orbit. This model was reduced for visualization purpose to a black and white ball propagating in a screw-like fashion through space. I put the model through all kinds of tests. Does this remind you of our prior speaker? It's all the same stuff after all. If it's all nothing, you can do it with anything. Increased ability to concentrate. This is very interesting given the whole other way we normally talk about using these materials. I was easily able to virtually shut out all distracting influences. I was easily able to follow a train of thought to a conclusion where normally I would have been distracted many times. I considered the process of photoconductivity. This is the photon guy again. I kept asking myself, what is light? And subsequently, what is a photon? The latter question I repeated to myself several hundred times till it was being said automatically in synchronization with each breath. Okay, now this was, we were not teaching these kind of techniques. This was what he came up with, is, right, the mantra in the breath. I have probably never in my life pressured myself as intently with a question as I did this one. Heightened empathy, the sense of the problem as a living thing. I spent a productive period climbing down on my retina, walking around and thinking about certain problems relating to the mechanism of vision. Awareness of the problem itself rather than the I who is trying to solve it. Again, we were not talking about ego loss or ego death, just that's what occurred. But notice it occurs in this model. Subconscious data more acceptable. We just, we just said you would not be troubled with personal memories. However, the session brought about almost total recall of a course I had in thermodynamics, which for those of us who ever had a course in thermodynamics was certainly a major traumatic incident in our lives. Let's hear it for thermodynamics. Yes. Right. Or get hot. Yes. Something I had never thought about in years. Then, um, the lovely one here, which is how, do you, how did you actually solve a problem? What ideas came together? I had earlier devised an arrangement for... And some of the vocabulary here is as obscure for some of you as some of the biochemical vocabulary has been for some of you this weekend. So, don't worry. I'd earlier devised an arrangement for beam steering on the two-mile accelerator, which reduced the hardware necessary by a factor of two. Two weeks ago, it was pointed out to me that the scheme would steer the beam into the wall, and therefore was unacceptable. During the session, I looked at the schematic and asked myself, how could we retain the factor of two but avoid steering into the wall? A flash of inspiration, which I thought of the word alternate. I followed this to its logical conclusion, which was alternate pol polarities sector by sector so that the steering bias would not add but cancel. I was extremely impressed with the solution and the way it came to me. And so it went. So what we found is that people were able to work on hard-nosed scientific data given two things. One is we told them they could and psychedelics helped them to do what they believed was possible. 
So there's this is pushing sentence setting a little harder than we are used to pushing it. But that again it suggests that psychedelics here are outside of the medical and the sacred models and extraordinarily useful. We also just kind of for our own amusement gave them psychological tests that night or two before and then during the this afternoon. And one of the things we knew, of course, is who would want to take psychological tests in this state. And we said they would love it. So they said, okay, we love it. <laughs> what do we know? And uh, one of the, one, the only one that's, that's fun is something called the Witkin Embedded Figures, which you are supposed to be able to see figures embedded in other figures, which you can think, you know, little acid might help. And the reason we picked it, and we picked these tough measurements at the time, the last test, Witkin, was in, reported to be stable under a variety of experimental interventions, including stress, training, sensory isolation, hypnosis, and the influence of a variety of drugs. However, with our 27 subjects, um, most of them scored much, much higher. In some cases, improvement as great as 200%. So even at the kind of crummiest level of psychological testing, they were both able to function and function in a superior way. So if that would interest you to function in a superior way, even in psychological ways, consider signing up at the end of this talk. Now, what did they work on? And what did they create, actually? Um, new approach to the design of a vibratory microtome. New commercial building design accepted by the client. Space probe experiments devised to measure solar properties. The design of a linear electron accelerator beam steering device, alternates. Engineering improvements to a magnetic tape recorder. A chair design, accepted by the manufacturer. A letterhead. A mathematical theorem regarding Norgate circuits. Now I confess, having run these studies, Norgate circuits are still something that I leave to the metaphysicians. But what happened is we had somebody who was working on Norgate circuits and said he'd made incredible progress. And he went back and told his team. And then a few weeks later, another member of the team came. And we made another jump forward in Norgate circuitry. And we did that with a third individual. So I guess that's a bifurcated or trifurcated consciousness in Norgate circuitry as one of the uh, successes of the psychedelic era. Uh, completion of more furniture, conceptual model of the photon, we've looked at a little, and a design of a private uh, vacation home. And we then asked them, of course, weeks later, has your work, you know, are you working any differently since you had this session? Since, again, mainly naive subjects, and we didn't say anything that there would be any after effects other than this would be good for you for the day. Big surprise about half of the people involved said that they had either significant or marked enhancement in their work life, in ability to solve problems, attitude toward job, productivity, you know, good stuff. So one of the things that we came out of that was even one experience, naive subjects, low dose, in this case, no suggestion, led to improved functioning in this world, on this level, in their jobs. These were people from Stanford Research Institute, Barry and Associates, Hewlett-Packard. I mean, these were very, very uh, straight, 
usually kind of middle-aged scientists who had a long history of being middle-aged and straight. So in the write-up that we were able to get out before the government stopped allowing even publishing, we said, we urge the desirability of further investigations, like who doesn't. But what we said is what would be really cool is to not have naive subjects, which is where you come in. Because a lot of, obviously, your kind of initial flash and excitement does get in the way of what it is you're there to do. And so we were really saying what would be sensible if we were a sensible country with sensible science uh, would be to encourage people to take these more regularly as part of their scientific work. Now, fortunately, uh, while the federal government stopped our work, um, the people who were interested in the computer world continued theirs. And we do now have a computer revolution. And if you trace it backwards to the kind of original folks who made the original breakthroughs, most of them, while not officially subjects in our experiment, uh, certainly had picked up on what we were doing. Some of them are doing it today. In fact, some of them are doing it right this very instant. I do read auras at a distance, and you have been spotted. So, that's, uh, while I have some kind of longer reports from some of the people, uh, probably the, the, the most attractive, most fun was an architect, a man named Heinrich Bull. And what Heinrich Bull said of the, he brought in three different projects. One, which he'd had a very, very difficult client who'd just been rejecting and rejecting and rejecting without telling exactly what he didn't like about the proposal. This was for a home. Or it's actually for a set of buildings on a piece of property. Um, he had a uh, college building to design which came with an 82 page list of specs and he also had some other things and at one point he decided that he didn't really have any way to begin the process of working on this was a particular project which was an arts and crafts center with some restaurants and parking on a like a three acre site and he took out his big drawing pad that he brought with him and he marked it out uh, the area of the acreage and then he just looked at it it was blank 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 and then he he said then I allowed it to appear and what he saw was the fully developed project done so he would do things like he would do with a completed drawing which was the blank um, he would count the number of parking spaces to see whether it met that particular criteria yes did it meet the you know the setbacks did it meet all the zoning requirements and it had and he literally walked into the project and looked around so he could go up under and see what kind of bolts he had used. And some weeks later, he began, he took his, he did make some sketches that afternoon because he was making, in a sense, notes. And then several weeks later, with his sketch pad next to him, he began to do the, the serious architectural drawings, the first kind of major renderings that show the whole project. And he was able to do that with some ease. The interesting thing to him was he didn't open his sketchbook. That he had been into that project well enough so he simply drew what he had seen, not what he had drawn. And found that it also 
um, was exactly to scale as it had been during the session. So, that's what we started with, and now we're ready to go to the next step, which is to take volunteers and to prove that Forbes or Fortune was once again, you know, guessing the future correctly. So, uh, since I'm asking for volunteers, uh, are there any questions before we take you off into the next room and start? Uh, that way we'll keep the, the kind of theoretical questions to a minimum because this is your life. Or at least one of them, yes. Yeah, I think a more knowledgeable group will react better than this group did uh, because there is the realization, one, is this isn't your last chance. Uh, some of you have read Rick Strassman's book, DMT, which he gave DMT in, as he describes it, a pretty rotten setting. And he knew it was lousy, and he had all experienced subjects. Because that way he could tell the government we are not creating addicts. We are using addicts. <laughs> you know, this is the same government that gave you poisoned food in World War II. So they thought that, that seemed to meet a lot of their criteria. But what he found is people would say, look, I know this is a terrible setting. You know it's a terrible setting. Let's do the best we can. And in that setting, Rick's subjects did have really a, a wide range of experiences uh, for some of them much wider than they had had in their prior DMT experiences, some within their range. So it was basically working with sophisticated subjects made it much, much easier to do the work. So that's, in general, I would say if we had sophisticated subjects who, again, the, the, the criteria that was important is these people wanted to solve those problems. And that was the, that was the driving force. And that would be that would be the one criteria I would look for in the replication. Thanks. Yes, please. Okay, the question of the control group. Uh, again, people in industry said to us, well, how do you know that if you didn't take these really smart guys and put them in a room and relax them for three hours and give them lunch, that they wouldn't do just as well? We said, we don't. You do that. So that's the kind of cheap answer, okay? But given our budget, that was what we could do. But the other thing is a double, you know, a double-blind study, so to speak, which is kind of what you're suggesting, comes at a much later development and usually is based on the notion that set and setting are not fundamental. Almost all double-blind studies in the literature say we're looking for the biochemical change between having something and not. And at one point, for reasons that you cannot imagine, I was looking at the uh, the, uh, the anti-baldness preparations. What's it called? Rigaine? Rigaine. I, I didn't buy it. And I was looking, I was reading on the back of the carton in the very fine print that I carry glasses for. And it said in the placebo-controlled studies that, that, that if you use this stuff and you have the right kind of baldness, you get about a 44% little bits of hair back a month but the control group that got nothing had 30% 30% of them got hair back so I wrote them and said can you send me the control group stuff because <laughs> that's good enough odds for me 
So, what, in a sense, what we did have, now third level to this question, we did have a control group, which is these same people. One is they had been working without this before. They now had a kind of relaxation methodology. And what all of them said, and I think Heinrich said it very nicely, he said, I didn't become, you know, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright. I just became more Heinrich Fulton. That he, that the houses, in this case the design of houses, they were like his houses, but he said freer. So in a sense, they all did try and replicate this in the following weeks, of course. And what they found is, sure, if you relax and get your ego out of the way, you can do better work. But uh, in the words of Ken Kesey, if you're ready to go, a dab will do you. So the dab turned out to be very useful. So that's about the best set of answers to the control question. Ah, yes. Well, this dates this study. No. No women. This this was... Um, these were people with degrees in, you know, physics, biology, chemistry, and engineering. Some 10 or 15 years later, I was teaching in design engineering at Stanford, and we were up to like 5% women in engineering. So simply... One is that wasn't our concern. Our concern was subjects who were interested, willing, and had the criteria, and there were very few women to pick from. Uh, one of the co-researchers eventually was a uh, woman professor of electrical, electrical engineering at Stanford who worked with us on some other studies, and the issue of sexual differences didn't seem to be, you know, it wasn't an issue at the time, and we had no way of, of, of looking at it. Oh, has all of the work in creative problem solving um, been in the technical and so forth? No, zero, actually. This is just some little aberration in my career. This is, I was trying to think as I was asked to prepare this, because John and I talked about my doing something, and I had a, a deep philosophical presentation about the past and the present and the future and social trends, and he said, no, nobody's interested in that. At least not for me, they were <laughs> And then he said, this is, this is this little odd part which we haven't really looked at very closely. And it's an odd part which was totally accepted by the general culture. So these were, you know, that's why picking people who had no um, other interests in psychedelics other than for problem solving was a very interesting group. Uh, certainly, um, I've done other things. Oh, why did we pick these kinds of problems? Is we wanted stuff that nobody could say, you're making it all up, it's bullshit, this is just another fantasy, you're just a bunch of deluded researchers. Which is why the artwork never, you know, now as, as you remember with John's presentation, is one of the questions was, what artist hasn't been influenced by psychedelics is a better question. Well, and... Any of you noticed in the curriculum of art academies across this country the compulsory understanding of the use of psychedelics? Not yet. So basically the fact that every artist has been influenced by psychedelics in the past 30 years has done zero to change anything in the attitude of the establishment that creates artists. What we were after is the kind of data where no matter how strongly you were inclined to disbelieve in the validity of psychedelics to enhance human capacity. You couldn't get away from the client bought the house 
the guy with the photon published it in a peer-reviewed journal. The guy with photoconductivity built the thing and the company made a bunch of dough out of it. So it was the kind of research which is incontestable rather than debatable. And that was really why, why we picked the area. I mean, our prior research had been, we, we were interested in alcoholism, for example. And it's fascinating. You work with alcoholics, they stop drinking, and uh, head of NIMH drug alcohol research at the time was presented with data from Canada on alcoholism uh, work. And it was just some sensational early work. And he said, you know, I don't believe this data. That's fair. That's his job. And someone said to him, well, what data would you believe in this area? He's a scientist trained in one of those scientific institutions. He said, none. But makes it really easy to design research for this guy. So given that kind of scientific rigidity, we picked what we picked. Does that make sense? Okay. Well, tell you the truth, when I was preparing this, I swore we used LSD. And I read what Willis Harmon and I wrote up, and it said we used mescaline. And this is now gossip, but when we were working at the International IFAS, now and then the government would say, you can't use LSD. And we'd say, okay, and we'd use mescaline. And then now and then they'd say, you can't use mescaline. Or maybe your mescaline might not be good mescaline. Or your mother's mescaline, you know. <laughs> or Form 7D has not been filled out in the last week. So we said, okay, we use LSD. So we had gotten used to, in a clinical setting, kind of using whatever was around. And we used to believe that when you use mescaline, people would have a lot more uh, stomach upset because that was our belief system. And then as we got better at working with people, we found that went away and the discomfort was entirely our subjective opinion of what people should feel. So one of the things you learn when you're doing clinical work with guiding is you really got to keep your thoughts clean because the person who you're working with certainly can listen. So we used what we used because that was that particular time. Now, I will now give you the unpublished work. This is now the secret of why we thought it would work. And I do have, by the way, a few copies of the publication for those of you who are actually serious about it. Don't get excited and take it home and throw it away, please, because only about 20. How did we come to the conclusion that we could do this? Okay, now how would you come to that conclusion? Got it! The four of us got together. That's why I think it was LSD, because I think that's what we took. It took a low dose of LSD and after a few hours we sat up and designed the experiment. So there's a term that uh, I learned from Doug Engelbart who is the guy who invented the mouse and invented word processing and unfortunately had already invented that pretty well before he was part of the study. Darn. But Doug had a term called bootstrapping, which is you have to pick yourself up by your own bootstraps to make the next move. So that's how we designed it. And so we thought it might work, but then again, what do four stone people know about reality? 
so we did this first day, and you know people were very happy, and they showed us their solutions. They were ecstatic, and we were, you know, that's very good. You had a nice day. Good. I'm glad it's working out. Your sitter's taking you home. Da da da. Then they left. We all went hysterical. You know, it worked. It worked. It worked. We actually did it. That moment when you actually find out that which you envisioned actually is so is like nothing else on earth. Well, not, no, it's second to whatever we discussed earlier in the evening. But for us it was close because we didn't know about his work at this point. So if you don't want to be in our study, go in his study. And I will see you back there with his group. Okay. So, I think we probably have room for one or two more questions, and that'll be it. Oh, uh, time for shameless commercial plug. When I really wanted to get on to this whole thing, so you would all buy my novel, The Other Side of Hate. It's really good. Ken Kesey said, it's really good. Ramdas said, it's really good. Do you really want to miss what they love? And in the spirit of loving and giving that, that makes this movement what it is, I have for each of you a genuine postcard which describes the book a little tiny bit and says how you can order it if you don't buy it from Bob Wallace, which is what you should do buy it from anyone else, but it's not as righteous. And you will be very glad that you have this book because hidden within it, you remember all those wonderful diagrams we saw of secret mushrooms? Well, hidden within this book is a fairly detailed way to guide someone on a very successful psychedelic. And it's a guiding which has basically been kind of removed from the public world and I think it's very important that we have that out there. And the story set in the 60s is, is really lots of fun. There's a lot of evil in it, but all the evil is true, and it's done by the government. And all the good is true, even though it's fictionalized, and it's done by us. So that was my shameless commercial bit. Thank you. Oh, the volunteers, right. Now, the price... Uh, the volunteers actually will, will meet up here, and as soon as the federal government... Oh, someone is laughing at the federal government. This is... As soon as they... As soon as the stars on that flag start to go, wow, 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 <laughs> just phone me. Okay? So, uh, I don't anticipate that we will do this and actually the, the Fortune article was very interesting in that it fantasied a uh, what was it a Leary Huxley Institute in which you could go and with trained supervision take these materials for scientific problems what was interesting in the article even in this somewhat fantasy they put it in a, another country so yes this will occur and I'm, I'm taking your question seriously for just a moment is will occur, and my guess is it will not occur in this country first. And we are basically, you know, the, the hope of those of us who are working, as we all are, to make the planet a little more livable, 
is other countries are beginning to get that whatever the United States thinks about these substances is cuckoo. And that country after country is kind of sliding out from under its agreements with the United States. So if any of you are Swiss citizens, you have you live in a country where marijuana has been legalized for Swiss citizens, and this is the part I love, for Swiss grown marijuana. No border problems. So but also if you think of it, what's the most uptight country in Europe you can think of? Right. So goodness knows if the Swiss have figured a way out of the the American idiocy you know, can Italy be far behind? So, uh, we'll do sign-ups, but we've got to have your passport and, you know, the other things you need to get in and out of the country. So, thank you very much, and uh, on to the next. Before we continue, I guess I'd better clear something up for any narcs who might be joining us here in the Psychedelic Salon today. And by the way, welcome. We're glad you're here. That's true, because we hope you'll learn that the psychedelic community isn't where the bad guys are. We're the good guys, for crying out loud. You know, <laughs> at least we're doing what we can to be part of the solution and not just be one more part of the problem. Now, where was I? Oh, yeah, unless you're really dense like the screwheads in the U.S. Capitol, you realize that Jim was joking about having people sign up for his grand experiment. There's no list to sign, in case you're wondering. Also, uh, early in his talk, Jim mentioned that one of our beautiful souls had just died that weekend, and I believe it was Elizabeth Gipps he was talking about. Elizabeth was one of the founding elders of today's psychedelic community, and one of her books, which is titled Scrapbook of a Hate Ashbury Pilgrim, is now considered uh, to be pretty much of a historical document, and, and it's really f- just packed with her prose and poetry and wisdom and drawings, all of which were inspired while she was living in San Francisco during the late 60s. And those who knew her well all say that Elizabeth was one of a kind as are we all, I might add. And if you're interested in learning more about the era Jim talks about in this presentation, I think probably the first place I would go is to his novel, The Other Side of Hate. And again, for you narcs out there, that's H-A-I-G-H-T, not H-A-T-E. We don't hate anyone, even though uh, (laughs) that's not as easy as it might sound sometimes. And for those of you who have uh, truly inquiring minds and maybe want to do a little ad hoc research on your own, well, if you pick up a copy of Jim's novel, you'll discover that in addition to being a great story, you'll also have in your hands an excellent how-to manual for guiding people on mushroom trips. And another good uh, account of those heady days, no pun intended, (laughs) is John Markoff's excellent little book, What the Dormouse Said which I talked about back in our podcast number 13, where Charlie Grove spoke at Kathleen's salon about his psilocybin study. And if you really want to know the nitty-gritty details about the Menlo Park research, well, you can try to find a copy of Malden Grange Bishop's book, The Discovery of Love, 
That book is long out of print, I'm afraid, but you can read my review of it on the Albert Hoffman Foundation's website at www.hoffman.org. That's one F and two M's, H-O-F-M-A-N-N.org. And uh, there's a link to that review on our podcast page, by the way, a page that describes this program, which is our 42nd, I might add. And uh, that page, by the way, is at matrixmasters.com slash podcast. Just remember, you are the master of your own matrix. Matrixmasters.com slash podcast. Oh, and uh, one last book I want to mention, and I guess I probably should have mentioned it first. It's uh, Charlie Grove's book, Higher Wisdom, Eminent Elders Explore the Continuing Impact of Psychedelics. And in that book, the opening essay in part one is uh, actually by James Batterman and is titled Transpersonal Transitions, The Higher Reaches of Psyche and Psychology. And in that essay, you'll also find a detailed account of some of his work with Myron Stolaroff and Willis Harmon at the International Foundation for Advanced Study, which I sometimes casually just call the Menlo Park Experiments. Jim's account in uh, Higher Wisdom is really fascinating and, quite frankly, has shown me what it really means to have the wisdom to take advantage of being in the right place at the right time, even if it means a major change in the direction you thought your life was going to take. He uh, certainly took a hard left turn, and uh, we're all the better for it. There's one last comment I want to make, and that is to point out an interesting connection, I think, between one of the people in the Menlo Park Research Project and my favorite inventor, Nikola Tesla. Now, if you've ever read a biography of Tesla, you know that when he was working on a new invention, he would sometimes go into a trance-like state and be seen using imaginary tools and working on imaginary devices. When he was asked about this, he'd say that these machines were just as real to him in that state as if they were made out of steel. Now think back to what Jim just said about the architect who saw his project and walked around in it like he was in a virtual reality simulation. And I think there's a really interesting similarity there, don't you think? Maybe old Nicola had figured out a way to release some of that DMT we've all got stored in our pineal glands. He was out there tripping on the natch. (laughs) We'll never know, of course, but it's sure fun to speculate, don't you think? I know from both personal experience and from talking to a lot of you psychedelic codeheads out there that a museum dose of LSD can work wonders for you when you're trying to hold a complex structure in your mind while you're deep into cutting some code, but hey, that's a story for another day. Right now, I guess it's time to let you all get on with your lives once again. It's certainly nice of you to join us here in the Psychedelic Salon again today, and we're all certainly glad that you stopped by. And a big thank you again to Jim Batterman, not only for giving his permission to podcast this talk, but for everything he's done throughout his life to further our knowledge about human consciousness. And don't forget to check out his novel, by the way. I don't think you'll be disappointed. John and JT, thanks for uh, making this recording possible, and Shock, Cordell, and Wells, my friends from Chateau Hayuk. Hey, guys, thanks again for the use of your music. I really do appreciate it. And for now, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.